Exodus chapter 17. This world is a realm of war. There are twisted and evil people who love it that way. On the opposite pole are those exasperated souls that keep yelling at everyone to just stop the fighting as if it was that simple. The truth is, no matter how much we may hate war and love peace, war is here to stay and every nation must deal with it in one way or another. This is true in the physical realm. It's true in the spiritual realm as well. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must realize that we live out our days in spiritual warfare. This is not a war with people, but it is a spiritual battle against the world order, against indwelling sin, against the demonic realm, and it's a very real war. It's not a war that we welcome, it's not a war that we enjoy, but we are in it, and we must deal with it. And God calls us in Ephesians 6, in this spiritual battle, to stand That is, to face the enemy and to fight courageously. And to do that, we need what every army needs. We need supply lines, and we need the power to sufficiently engage the enemy. The troops need sufficient food and water in order to fight. Without that, they're not going to get anywhere. And when they fight, they need to have the military strength to compete with their enemy. As we come to Exodus chapter 17, we find a key transition in Israel's history. The nation of slaves engages in its first military encounter in this chapter. Now there's many daydreamers who would like to say, Israel should be a nation that spreads love and peace through the world. Why do we read of so much warfare in the Old Testament? Perhaps it is that there's a different God there. Or perhaps it is that the religion of Israel evolves into something much richer and more perfect. There is a sense in which there is certainly grand transition in Jesus Christ. And on this side of the cross, we live in a different world. But I think these are, in the end, daydreamers. To think that Israel ought to be a nation who just passes love and peace onto all people. God has a purpose with Israel, and that purpose is going to include war. There is only one way that Israel is going to return to the promised land after four centuries of absence, and that is going to be through war. It's a fallen world. People do not fall down before God and line up with His purposes. And in this setting, at this time, in God's purposes with His people, war is inevitable. It's necessary. But as the nation makes its way south and east toward Mount Sinai, she suffers a supply crisis. There's no way for the soldiers to fight. In fact, there's no way for the nation to live. 17.1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Let's remember two prophecies here as we enter into this chapter. The prophecy one, to bring to your attention again, is Genesis chapter 15. 
In Genesis chapter 15, God promises that Israel will return to the promised land after 400 years. And that God, as he brings the nation back to Canaan, will use them to punish the Canaanites. That is, the sin of the Canaanites will become so overripe, so corrupt, that God will have no other option but to bring judgment upon them, extermination upon them. And God will use Israel. This is four centuries before this happens. God says, I will bring you back and this will be the case. Prophecy number two is Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12, where Moses will return with Israel to Mount Sinai, where God called him out of the burning bush. So God says, Moses, I want you to go deliver the Israelites, and you are going to come back here with them to this mountain. We're going to meet again right here. With those two prophecies in mind, Israel now makes her way to Rephidim, which will be the last recorded stop before reaching Mount Sinai. But there is this great crisis once again, a third crisis that we find since they have left the Egyptians in the Red Sea. This crisis again is no water. At Marah, you remember chapter 15, verse 23, they had been dying of thirst but found that the waters were too bitter to drink. At Rephidim, their hopes never even get off the ground. They are not even given the chance to be disappointed. There is simply no water anywhere to be found. In chapter 16, God had supplied Israel's need for what? He supplied her need for food. There was meat in the form of quail. There was bread in the form of manna. But without water, these supplies are worthless. Israel needs to drink. Response, verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Grumbling again. At Marah 15.24, in the desert of Sin 16.3, and here again at Rephidim, their grumbling is intensified, and here so much so that it ends up in open hostility and contention with Moses, whom Israel holds accountable for her lack of water. Put yourself in Moses' stead for just a moment. A pretty unfair attack, isn't it? Moses is simply following God's direction. Moses has no capacity to give water to these many, many peoples. There's no way. So as in chapter 16, Moses recognizes again that Israel's contention is really not with him, but with God himself. And as with the food crisis in the desert of sin, Moses turns to God. He calls out to the Lord and says, verse 4, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Again, put yourself in Moses' place. This is not a happy situation. The people he fears will kill him for bringing them here. They have come to that place. It's a horrible setting. We can just take a brief sideline and apply just for a moment. I think we learned some things from Moses' leadership here. This will speak to some, perhaps a bit more than to others. But I think we need to see here that spiritual leaders must prepare to face ridicule. This is part of spiritual leadership. 
It's not some weird event that takes place in certain churches and certain Christian institutions. This is part of spiritual leadership, and anyone who aspires to that must be ready to take some ridicule. When a person genuinely leads others to follow God, some of those people who follow will not like where that path leads. And they will lash out against the leader because they don't know how to hit God. Maybe they don't want to admit that they are lashing out at God. But those who enter spiritual leadership need to know this is part of the deal. Moses is learning this in many hard, hard lessons. But he comes at this place to the place where he believes that the people will stone him, that they will literally kill him and take his life because he has led them where God wants them to be. It's not fair, but it's part of spiritual leadership in one respect or another. Secondly, I think we learn here that when spiritual shepherds are unjustly attacked, they must run to God in prayer. If the attack is legitimate, then the leader is right where he needs to be, on his knees, before the throne of repentance. But if the attack is really against God, then the leader lays the burden at the feet of the one who will ultimately vindicate his honor. The answer is not bitterness. The answer against such grumbling and contention is not to become a grumbler, but is to go to God in prayer. Moses is learning. He is a deep man, and he is becoming a very skilled leader. He will have much more to learn, but he's learning this. Go to God. And so he runs to God, and God answers there in verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Please turn back to chapter 7 and verse 19. We need to see the parallel, I think, that's being very clearly drawn here. Chapter 7 and verse 19. We read here in the first plague upon Egypt and the turning of the Nile to blood, Chapter 7 and verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, and notice here, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. Notice that phrase, in the sight of his servants. And lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. Now back to chapter 17. Note the parallels here. Egypt has an abundant source of water. Israel has no source of water. Moses stretches out his hand, and with his rod strikes the waters of the Nile, and they are corrupted. He stretches out his hand and strikes the rock, and an abundant supply of water is provided for Israel. And he does this in Egypt, where the officials of Pharaoh watch the judgment of God. At Horeb, the elders of Israel watch God's miraculous provision of water for her. So the staff is a symbol of Moses' access to the power of God, and the leaders of Israel witness this power. 
as he strikes the rock and water comes from it. Chapter 17 and verse 6, we find an interesting idea here that it says God will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, speaking to Moses. When this phrase in the Hebrew text is used as one will stand before another, it is usually used of one who is in a position of subordination. But God uses this phrase of subordination with Moses and says, I will stand before you. We might illustrate it by a father who comes home and sees his son out in the driveway cutting a board with a saw. And the dad comes along and holds the board for the son to cut through the board. You see the point. I mean, generally, the place of subordination is to hold the board, and the person that's got the skill takes the saw and cuts the board. But here, it's as if God is on the other side saying, I'll hold the board, Moses. I'll stand before you as you bring water from this rock. In fact, I will stand on this rock. We don't know what that means. Was God invisible as he stood there on that rock? Probably the idea of a ledge of rock in some way. Don't get the idea of you know, this little handheld rock as such, but probably a, a ledge of rock, and he stands there on this rock. Is he invisible? Is it the glory cloud that comes down and touches right at that place on that rock? We don't know. What we do know is that, of course, it is God alone who can supply the water. He is the source, and he is there with Israel supplying her every need as she continues on in the wilderness. But as wonderful as this truth is, this supply by God is not the primary memory of this place. And this is sad. But notice verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Massa, testing. Meribah, quarreling. What was so shocking about this event was that God led Israel into this trial to test her faith. Exodus 15, 25. Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 3 make this very explicit. God led Israel here to test her, to find the quality of her faith. And we ask the question, would God have let Israel die of thirst if she had an attitude of faith and dependence? Obviously not. And this is the irrationality, the virtual insanity of all grumbling. God is no more inclined to hear our cry if we grumble. And God never punishes faithful dependence upon Him by turning a deaf ear to our legitimate need. He tested Israel here. But what is so sad about this place, it does not become a memorial place of the great and abundant provision of God, but it's called the place of testing. And ironically, it is not only God who is testing Israel, but it is Israel who is testing God. She is putting God to the test here, to try Him, and saying, ultimately, at the end of verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? I read that phrase and I just want to duck. It's just like, look out, Israel. You're going to get fried. I mean, this is terrible. What has God done? Ten plagues in Egypt. He has split the sea and allowed her to walk through. He has provided bread out of heaven. 
And she says, is God among us? It's a horrifying question. But this is ultimately how Israel handles the test. This is the point. Israel doubted the love and provision of God no matter what evidence there was to the contrary. God had said in Exodus 3 and verse 12, I will be with you. And in Exodus 13, 21 and 22, we see God in a pillar of cloud leading the people of Israel. And we see all of the miracles that He has performed in her behalf. And she says, is the Lord among us or not? Well, as we consider this text, we need to look at the purpose and character of God as He works with His people. And ultimately, we would say on this side of the cross that the ultimate provision for God's people is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no accident that Jesus uses the water theme as a metaphor for His presence in the believer's life. As God supplies water to Israel in the desert, so Jesus Christ stands and says, I am the water of life. Let's go to John chapter 4 and verse 13. And remember this theme in Christ's teaching. There are tremendous parallels between the Exodus the wilderness wanderings and Jesus Christ and His message of redemption and His offer of Himself as the Son of God and the Redeemer of His people. John chapter 4 and verse 13, Jesus said to her as He speaks to this Samaritan woman at a well, John 4 and verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is that supply from God that provides never-ending satisfaction of our thirst. The theme continues in John chapter 7 and verse 37. John 7 and verse 37 On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the satisfaction of our soul. He is that satisfaction. There is no other Christ provides that satisfaction and He calls out to all who will come, come and drink. He fully satisfies the inner being. I'd like to point to one more New Testament passage which is stunning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 which draws this parallel very decidedly for us. Jesus as the living water, the provision for God's people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, we read Moses passing through the Red Sea, verses 1 and 2, and all eating the same spiritual food, verse 3, this referring to the man in the wilderness. Now notice verse 4, as Paul goes back to the Exodus account, he says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
Drinking from the spiritual rock in the context of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt, there's no question this is referring to the passage we're looking at and also to a later account. He draws water out of the rock for his people and that rock is Christ. This seems a strange way to read the Old Testament text, but I think if we look at the large picture of what God is doing in Exodus chapter 17, we understand what he is saying. The water-gushing rock points to the ultimate provision of God. God always provides the needs of his people. And what is that ultimate provision? It is Jesus Christ and the Spirit that he gives to his people. There is a solid rock from which God provides all that we need, and that rock is Jesus Christ. He was there with Israel in the desert, and He is here with you in your desert. He never leaves us or forsakes us, but provides this inner well that cannot be quenched. And here's where it gets ugly. Yet we, with the ultimate fulfillment of this provision, of satisfying water, continue in our grumbling and our complaining and our belly aching. And we look at life and we can only see the problems. You know, when we look at Israel in this light, it's very easy to see them this way, isn't it? I mean, what is your problem, people? Ten plagues splitting the Red Sea, and then you ask, with this cloud up in front of you, of God's presence, is the Lord among us? What in the world is wrong with you? But I think as the redeemed, if they are able to look down upon us, or as the angels watch, I wonder if they don't ask that very same question of us. What in the world is wrong with you? We have just gathered around this table today to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven to lay down his life, to bear our sin, and to provide for us a home in heaven forever and ever in the presence of God. He provided not merely a drink in the desert, but provides full satisfaction and victory over death and sin and disease and Satan and all that corrupts this world. He's won the battle. And we get so oriented to the things that aren't quite right in our life. And I wonder who looks down upon us and says, what is wrong? Look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and rejoice he supplies our every need. And I wonder then how we will be remembered in this world. How will your life be remembered as you pass it in death? Will it be remembered as one who is always contending with God? Never satisfied, always struggling, always grumbling, never quite happy with life. A contentious spirit and attitude toward the Lord. Or will people be able to say of you, he or she was one who drank deeply of the satisfying water of life? There was a contentment. There was a peace. There was a rejoicing that can be explained only by the presence of Jesus Christ in his or her life. With all of the glories of God surrounding her, Israel leaves this place, and the stamp is 
testing, contention, grumbling, strife, unbelief. May that not be us, because we have a greater vision of glory. We see a blood-stained cross and an empty tomb, and we know the victory's been won. May we walk in that victory. The supply has been provided to the grumbling soldiers-to-be. But now the battle is engaged at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. This is kind of a chilling verse. It's a great transition in the book of Exodus. This has been a nation of slaves, and now we have open warfare. What's going on here? Amalek, descendants of Esau, not Edomites as such, but descendants of Esau, militaristic nomadic Bedouins who lived in the south of Canaan, and they come to this place to attack Israel, so they are apparently, even though Israel's heading south, they are heading south behind them from the north to assure that Israel is not going to come back to Canaan. They want to stifle them. And so they attack Israel. Now we have to read this cross-reference to see what's really going on. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 17. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 17. Later, God will say to the Israelites about this battle. Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So attacking from the north, Amalek attacks the weakest of the Israelites and seeks to crush the nation. This is really a foreshadowing of all of the enemies of God who will resist God's agenda for Israel. Here the battle is engaged, back to Exodus 17, and we'll return to the theme of Deuteronomy 25 in a moment. In fact, it will come out here at the end of chapter 17. But at verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, he's not introduced here, no need to be for the original readers, probably not for us either. He is the military leader of Israel and Moses' protege. He says to Joshua, verse 9, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now it's very clear what Moses is saying to Joshua. Take the military attack against Amalek. But what is he saying about himself? We're not really sure. Why he's going to stand on this hill with the staff of God in his hand, the text doesn't indicate. But the staff of God in Moses' hand does say that God is about to act with amazing force. You get that sense, don't you, in Exodus. Moses picks up that staff and things begin to happen. God begins to act, and that's what's happening here. So, verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand... Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. 
Now again, we're not told precisely why Israel's victory relies on Moses' uplifted hands. The storyline of Exodus reveals that Moses uses the uplifted hand to initiate unique redemptive acts by God, serving as God's vice regent. We see that in 9.22 with the hail, in 10.12 with the locust, in 14.16 with the dividing of the sea, Moses lifts his hand, serving as God's vice regent, and he accomplishes a great work for Israel. But precisely why his hands have to be in the air throughout the entire battle, we're not told. This battle, no less than the dividing of the Red Sea, however, is clearly God's battle. Moses' hands are not magically defeating Amalek, but there is something with the uplifted hand that invites the presence of God. I think it's indicated here below, but in verse 14, the Lord says to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Israel wins this battle. She's just a nation of slaves. She's not skilled in warfare by any means. But God comes to her aid and supplies the strength and the power to do what might seem impossible. And God says this will be a memorial in a book recited in the ears of Joshua. Amalek is going to be destroyed. Now there's many who object here. Isn't God overreacting a bit? Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 that we read and look at this here that we've got to wipe Amalek out. Is this a bit of overreaction here on God's part? Why so zealous for the blood of Israel's enemies? Well, I think as we ask those types of questions, there's a longing in our heart for peace, which is a legitimate longing, but there is also a confusion as to how peace comes. Total conquest has always been God's agenda. That's what this world is about, is God conquering His enemies. You are either with Him or you are not. You join His people or you side with the resistance. From cover to cover, the Bible unfolds a grand scheme by which God puts down every enemy and every act of rebellion on earth. It is at this place, and perhaps at this place alone, that there is some commonality with the conservative Christian and Islam. There is an understanding that there's a war that is going on and that there will be a final conquest. We part ways right at that point. For the Christian warrior, how do we engage the battle? How do we fight this war? We lay down our lives. We give our lives for our enemies. That's completely opposite of what Islam would say, certainly radical elements of Islam. But I think we're talking about then the radical elements of Christianity as well. The radical elements that follow Christ are willing to give their life for the cause of Jesus Christ, laying down their life for the enemy. This is our battle today. But let's remember, though, our battle today is somewhat distinctive from Israel's battle. In the end, this is a battle. And in the end, Jesus Christ will return and vindicate the blood of His people and decisively crush the rebellion. He has laid down His life to defeat sin. 
But Revelation 19 and 20 indicate that Jesus Christ will return and there will be a day when He wins the final victory. More on that in a moment. But this just fits into the larger picture. We can't get too narrowed in on God's attitude toward Amalek right at this moment. We need to see the big scheme. This is what God is doing, is crushing the rebellion that started in the Garden of Eden. And eventually all will come to submission to Him. And so remember this, says God. You can't forget this. This is one people that I am judging. And so Moses built an altar, verse 15, and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This altar is not a sacrificial altar. This is an altar of remembrance. It served to remind Israel that she had fought this battle with God's power for God's glory and had won. God was the banner that flew over the entire operation. Now what's that phrase mean, a hand upon the throne of God? It's confused uh, Bible scholars for a very, very long time. But apparently, I'm going to take a stab at it anyway, that Moses' uplifted hand symbolized his dependent and privileged hold upon the throne of God. That somehow with that uplifted hand, he was appealing to the power and authority of God. And so he says here, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. That may have been the banner. His uplifted hand, an indication of the banner of God flying over the battlefield. This war with Amalek has been won. It will be an ongoing war. Amalek will not be wiped out for some time. But this nation would remain hostile to God's people. And the Old Testament records many battles with them over various generations, but ultimately Amalek is silenced. And it is a foreshadowing of the conquest that is to come of Canaan. Now this battle is also, I think, a foreshadowing of more than just Israel's conquest, but is a foreshadowing of the greater battle that God is pursuing against His enemies and will to the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last enemy to die is what? It's death. This is the final enemy that Christ will put down, and he is in this battle to defeat all enemies. Peter Enns draws from a Swiss theologian as he gives this analogy, so I borrow it from one who borrowed it from someone else, but I think it's fitting. If you're aware of, at all of World War II and the circumstances involved there, he said that the Christian lives in one respect between D-Day and V-Day. That is, with D-Day, there was the turning of the tide. There was the final crushing of Germany and Hitler. But the battles weren't over. In a sense, the war was won. It was just a matter of time from that place, but the battles continued until V-Day, until the final victory of that terrible conflict. Well, there is a sense, I think, that that illustrates to some degree the walk of the Christian soldier. We are in between the cross and final glory. The battle has been won. Jesus Christ has crushed the powers, the spiritual powers that are hostile to Him, Colossians 2.15. The war is won with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When He walked out of that tomb and rose again, never to die again, death was crushed. Satan's head was crushed 
But the war, the battles continue, don't they? It's not over yet until the final fulfillment. And that will include the final judgment of Christ's enemies. Because any, anyone who is against Jesus Christ is really serving death. Jesus will end death and all who identify with it. And as Revelation 21 in verse 27 says, ultimately there will be no one vile who enters into his presence. No one who wants the death of another. No one who is corrupt in heart. No one who is sinful in any way will enter into the presence of God and in heaven. And so we come as the soldiers of Christ, not in our sinlessness, but knowing that there is a great war that is ongoing and that Christ will, in the end, crush the rebellion. But we know that we are part of that rebellion. In our birth, we are bent against God. It is only through the salvation of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty of our sin on the cross that we can enter into reconciliation with God. That is the only provision for any soul. And only through faith and confidence in that work and the redemptive work of God can we be saved from our rebellion against Him. Listen, the Bible says that Jesus died for His enemies. He died for His enemies. There is no one for whom He has died that is not His enemy. We need to understand in our sin that we do not come before God on right standing in ourselves. We need to be saved. We need to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. But having come to receive that forgiveness, as God washes us clean through the Spirit of God and gives to us eternal life, we now go on as the followers of Christ, as soldiers. We are fully supplied in Jesus. We have the power of God over sin and death and Satan. It's a hard world. It's a difficult fight. But the war has been won. And we are left simply to fight our way through small skirmishes until we get home. That's greatly encouraging. I, I try to bring that sense and that aura to my life and to think of that analogy over and over again. That the war's been won. These skirmishes are simply to get me home. And I can't wait to get home. I can't wait to get there. But there are battles now. There are battles to be fought with sin and the demonic realm. And so we fight with full confidence that God has supplied our every need in Christ. He has won the victory and given us all the power necessary to defeat every enemy all the way along. The war has been won. Let's just keep going with the battles until we get home. And we will get home if we are God's people. We will get there. We're going to get there either as grumblers or as rejoicers. Let's choose to glory in the victory of Jesus Christ and not to minimize what He has done in any way, shape, or form, that we might be soldiers who get home as those who have been all along rejoicing in the victory of Jesus Christ. Does He satisfy your soul? Do you sense His power and His authority 
over all challengers. May we rejoice in that victory. Let's bow for prayer. Father, may we encourage one another with these words. I pray for your people that we would realize the world in which we live and that we'd see the real picture. We don't love the battle. We long for it to be over. We can't wait to get home. But God, may we not join the daydreamers to think that there's no battle. And that if we just capitulate to the desires of our world, all conflict can cease. Lord, help us to see what you're doing, how you're using us, and bring us home. If there's anyone who has not joined your side, I pray that you would teach them and help them to understand that they're part of the resistance. And I ask God that they'd lay down arms today, and that they would come before your presence and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior I pray that you will affect this and bring it about, that in your grace and your mercy you will draw people to yourself as Savior. God, help us as we struggle. But thank you for the victory. And should we pass into your presence before the return of Christ, I pray that those left behind would say of us, that is a man... That is a woman who drank deeply of the satisfying waters of Jesus Christ. May that peace and that joy be seen by all. That we might draw others to saving faith in Christ and bring glory to you until we reach our heavenly home. May we strive to that end in faith as your soldiers. In Christ I pray. Amen.